yes, that we started to explore this idea of sadness and experiencing pain and where does the pain come from and what's the pain about in a few weeks. We are in a state of pain. And the, and the first idea we explored was that sadness in the Western world has a very bad rap, that people are trying to run away from it the whole time. What we suggested was that perhaps sadness isn't as bad as its uh, reputation. In fact, there could be something very, very powerful about embracing sadness. And I suggested that in our definition of negative and positive emotions, the categories should not be positive emotions or happiness and joy, elation and ecstasy and bad emotions or sadness, um, worry, fear, but rather that good emotions are emotions which connect to the external reality in a coherent fashion, and bad emotions are emotions which do not connect to the external reality in a coherent fashion. So if someone dies and you're happy, that's incoherent. If something really amazing happens and you're sad, that's incoherent. But if someone dies and you're sad, or you have a relationship that dissolves and you are pained, those are healthy relationships. Those are healthy emotions because the emotion is synced into the event. And therefore, if uh, that broader spectrum of our rich emotional life, which isn't just a candy-coated, oh, happy, I'm so happy, have a great day. No, have a greater day. No, have the greatest day in your life and tomorrow as well. So when you've got that kind of hype about super happy, everything's good, everything always has to be good, it creates a inclination to whitewash over the depth and beauty of multiple emotions with a smile thank you, smiley face we allowed that paradigm to be a portal into understanding the three weeks, because if healthy emotions are emotions which are connective, and unhealthy emotions which are dislocating, so then just like the Torah has Chagim for Simcha and for liberation. It also has Chagim for sadness because at that point of time, that's a connective emotion. And that's why Tisha B'Av is called a Moyad. Just like you've got the Moyadim, Sukkot and, and Pesach, you've got the Moyad of Tisha B'Av. It's also a Moyad. Now, in the bigger picture of the Boya Olam plan for the world, once Mashiach comes, is there going to be this duality of emotional complexity? No. In the world of the Tikkun, so then it's pure light. It's unending joy. That's a, that's a, it's a different state of being. But in the world of today, which is fraught with pain and fragmentation and Difficulty. So then pain is a crucial player in our emotional world, as is sadness, as is worry, as is fear. Those are all healthy emotions when they attach to the right external event. So what is the external event that our sadness during these three weeks is attached to? We obviously can't assume that it was because of some historical event that when commemorating it we should be sad, because that's ludicrous. It's ludicrous because that event has passed. It happened in a particular 
space and a particular time and it's it's ludicrous to experience emotion over an event that didn't occur to me and has already elapsed. It's just it's absurd. It's literally absurd. Mm-hmm. So people say, do you know, why are you crying? And you say, well, I'm crying because of the base of Medbush. It cannot possibly be that what we're crying about is once there was a structure that stood upon the Temple Mount and it came a tumbling down. That is ludicrous. It makes no sense on ev- any level. Not emotionally and not... Um, not not philosophically and not logically, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, why then, we could ask ourselves, do we say that this is about the mourning of the temple? So clearly what we're doing is referring to a concept and an extrapolation of what the temple represents, what was lost, and that's what we're mourning. In other words, we're not mourning an event and a building that was caught and trapped in a space and a time. Rather, what we're mourning is a state of being that was represented by the temple. And when the temple was broken down, so there was a shift in the spiritual, emotional, general state of the Jewish people, and that shift is still present. Hence, when we connect to that shift, which is the external environment that we'd like to experience with an appropriate emotion, when we relate to that state, the connective emotion is sadness. So let's try plow a bit deeper into what that means. When the Rambam writes in Hilchas Tanyas, about Tishabav, there's a very strange thing that he does. So the Rambam in the fifth peric of Hilchas Tanyas describes what happened on Tishabav. But Tishabav Chamishad Varim Iruboy, on Tishabav five things happened. The first thing is that the Jews were decreed that they would not be allowed to enter into the land of Israel when the spies returned, and they gave a bad report, and the Jewish people cried, and it was an unjust crying, and therefore um, that rejection of the land had an impact that the Jews actually were not allowed to go inside. And the base, both the second and the first temples were destroyed. And was conquered this great city. There are literally millions of occupants, occupants called Beitar. And they were they had this great leader. And they thought that he was a Melech Mashiach. This was Bar Kochba or Bar Koziva. And the, everyone thought that. This was it. They reached the state of Gula, and he was then and he was killed, and there was an incredible massacre, which was absolutely tragic for the Jewish people. So we have, let, let's think about the tragedies. We have the Jews went allowed into the land of Israel. First and second temples. And the destruction of Beta. Those are the first four tragedies. And there's this fifth tragedy. Now let's just think about the uh, impact of those tragedies. The size. You know, the Jews not being able to go into Israel was that that was like the entire purpose of their Yetzirah, why they left Egypt. That was their goal. And being not allowed in was calamitous. It was calamitous. 
the Jewish people, when they had the temple as the epicenter of their spiritual and, and cultural social life, that being laid waste was calamitous, both in, the, both in the first and second times. This gigantic metropolis called Beitar, with the hope of redemption, and a person that really could have done it, and then is murdered, and then a massacre follows. Those are calamities. So why don't you do just wait for the fifth calamity, which, which, which is, must be seemingly by association on the same level as the previous four. So let's see what this terrible, terrible, unthinkable tragedy was. And on that day, that was set aside, prepared for Puranos, meaning that the day of Tishabav in itself, when we're connecting to it, it's a day of destruction and tragedy in its energetic field. That's what it is. So when you connect it to that's what you feel. On that day, which was Muchan the Puranus, Chorash Turnus Rufus Harosha plowed Turnus Rufus, a Roman general, he plowed Esahichol, the site where the sanctuary stood, the Es Sevivov and the surrounding area, in order to fulfill that which the Pasuk says, Zion, Zion, Sode Techoresh, like a field will be plowed. Well, what? Hello? Destruction of the temple, the massacre of millions of Jews, the inability to go to the promised land, tragic. One day, a German wrote, German general, uh, Roman general make, wakes up, uh, decides they're going to go plow the field that once stood the site of the base of Mikdash. <gasps> oh my gosh! Big deal? Big deal? Is that a big deal? It wasn't that good at plowing. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. But it's the fifth tragedy. What in the world does the Rambam mean with this? I remember listening to... Um, one, a great man, Rabbi Moshe Shapira, uh, Shalom, and he explained what this Rambam meant and why this tragedy actually has a association and an equality with the other four, and that is because we as a people have a relationship to the creator of the world, the Bara Olam. And the create that relationship should be one which of which is incredibly intimate and involved and caring. That's the kind of relationship you have when you have a home and you share a home together. When you share a home together, you come home and that's a very intimate space. Stuff happens there. It's not the kind of thing that happens in the workplace. The workplace is a completely different space. It's transactional. It's how do you generate income, how do you make deals, how do you negotiate. The relationship in the workplace is a different kind of relationship. It has different parameters. It's not intimate. A home is deeply intimate. Base Samikdash was the home that we dwelled within it with the Boreolam in an intimate fashion. Our connection was very, very, very close. And then that sight was laid to ruins. But what happened, what was there, was a ruined home. A ruined home is a home that's ruined. But it's a ruined home. But it's still a home. 
just in ruins. But there's some remnant, there's some sense of what was once. And then when that home becomes completely obliterated and in its place a field is put, it's a shifting in a metaphorical sense of the relationship that there's no longer that intimacy. Now it's just transactional. And that is a deep, deep, deep tragedy which perhaps informs on the previous four that the whole point is not buildings and events but it's connection. And when the connection is severed that is the most painful thing in the entire world. And the, the Romans do that. If you go to the Cardo they renamed Jerusalem Alia Capitolona. They literally tried to eradicate any sense of Jewish presence ever being there. And there are some things which are so ironic as we start to perhaps smell the scent of Mashiach in our own lives. When we go back there and the 10th legion of the Roman Empire, which was sent to destroy the temple, literally has graffitied its name on the walls and you can still see them but the 10th legion is long dead and there's no remnants of them but the graffiti on the live and vibrating homeland of the Jewish people so amidst amidst it all we are starting to see the twinklings of the light on the horizon as we've returned to our land but at the same time there's so much pain so much separation we have the power to penetrate the pain because with our faith, faith will not drive us to become insane. When we go deep inside of ourselves, we can learn to cope because underneath all the deep pain, we are still filled with hope. When our eyes look forward and we see the sky, even though sometimes we do not, do not understand why, we have security, connection, and camaraderie. Because we know that the Bayolam will never let us alone to be. So that's something we have to ponder. And that's really what we're trying to get connected to. So what is this connection that we've lost? How do we experience in our own lives? So what we discussed briefly yesterday is, well, let's take a brief survey of how the Boyodom's business is doing. How, how manifest is this incredible vision for a utopia? How manifest is that in our present day world? And we can go from the Far East to the Near East, to Europe, to America, to South and to North, and all the way up to Alaska. And let's try to think. When we see the world, is it a gigantic, resounding, resonating call of Kfoyot Shemaim and Kiddush Hashem? Do we see the spiritual frequency of the awakeness, the awareness, the presence of this incredibly kind, powerful spiritual force? 
or do we see perhaps the exact opposite? And when we look around, before we even arrive at the world of the Jewish nation, we just look at the fragmentation on every level in societies in Western East. From what seems to be irrational fundamentalism in the Near East, to rampant capitalism and seemingly the loss of the sense of the individual in the Far East in many countries, to the Western world, which may may well be civilization in crisis, polarization of sides fueled by social media, the fragmentation of the basic building block of community, which is the family, becoming almost um, a rarity in its healthy form. The lack of direction and purpose that plague the Western mind and the poor substitute of careerism, which becomes the dominant goal and expression of the human drive for something more. And then we go and we look deeper into well, where do we see the Kvotra in in our in our world, in our in our place and the, the Jewish people and well first of all the the large majority of the Jewish people have no real connection to their heritage, to the to the Torah, to to anything of Jewish nature. Ironically, sometimes well-intentioned Jews will be so disconnected that they'll have arbitrary connections to things which appear to be Jewish, when in fact are quite the opposite. For example, an advertisement an advertisement in a local Jewish delicatessen for a Tisha B'Av special meat sale, because they picked up a Jewish calendar and they saw Tisha B'Av and thought, wow, what a great opportunity to make it a marketable um, enterprise. So they advertise, you know, they tish above Mitzel, which obviously is inherently contradictory to the nature of tish above, where you should not eat meat or <laughs> drink wine. And then you move inwards to, to, to the closer parts of our, you know, the inner circles of the people who still have a great awareness. So, you know, you go from, from, the, from the unaffiliated to the affiliated to, to the orthodox on the left of orthodoxy or clinging on to the orthodoxy by a strand to the more intense and then to the super intense and then almost there's this kind of there's this kind of like reversal like as you get more intense and then it becomes like you feel that there's like unfortunately also within the Jewish world a sense of irrational fanaticism that has entered into some circles where they they throw out rational thought in the face of religious fanaticism. And then you go a little bit deeper into the particularities of each and every one of these little communities and, and you start to see that, that things are not going so great, that the schooling system isn't so I I I and that the yeshivas aren't so aha aha <laughs> and that the base young curves base young curves, the you know the girls' school, um, when we had a young lady who was raised through that system and she was recently on a 
Shabbaton with a group of students and they start asking her questions. And she said, but I was taught growing up that we're not allowed to ask questions. Which ironically seems the, the, the opposite ethos to what Judaism is comprised of. So, so, so you think, whoa, 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 what's going on? What's going on? Like, what is going on? What is going on? And then I don't have to look even much further than myself. And I look at the incredible mess that I'm in. And when I say me, I don't mean only me. I mean me and Shimon. <laughs> yeah, Shimon's also a mess. But the truth is, it's not only me and Shimon. It's, I can happily say it's every single, everyone else in this room as well. <laughs> Just such a mess. And you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's because you're way too scared to fail, face the incredible pain and incompletion that we carry around with us every day of our lives. We just are all a very, very, very big mess. So we all messed up. So we're messed up individually. Our communities are messed up, even the ones that are close. The ones at the periphery are so messed up. In other words, what? how could we describe the state of the world today? Quite simply, no open, obvious presence of Hashem. We don't see the kindness. We don't see the boundaries. We don't see that spiritual vision being enacted in any sphere of our society. And I'm Khalila not critiquing what we do have, because we do have stuff. And yes, it is miraculous that 4,000 years later, here we are championing the cause that's been initiated by ancestors and in the face of complete and total oppression, persecution and beyond any reasonable doubt we should have been obliterated and yet we stubbornly survive. Yes. And the fact that after 2,000 years of wandering around as exiles but every day praying to return to Jerusalem. Yes, we're back in Jerusalem. And yes, there's a certain sense of within us as a small minute, 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 mini micro community. Yes, a sense of growth and renew, renewal and rejuvenate. Yes, I'm not trying to undermine that which we do have, but if we measure it against a perfect world, it is so lacking. And once we have to step back and just live with the pain of the lacking. And yes, am I doing okay? I don't mean to. Shimon's also doing okay. Shimon, huh? Shimon's got problems. Have you seen how Shimon's transformed? <laughs> you have no idea where Shimon was when he walked into these doors. Do you remember those days, Shimon? That was the time again. That was, yeah. Look at look at that incredible growth on every level of his being. But at the same time, measured against the perfect Shimon, still far, 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 far away from what could be. Rabbi Zada. I mean, do we need to begin? <laughs> <laughs> the kids are we all messed up, right? If I look at myself and I look at my issues and... and you look at your issues and just honestly look at your issues and you see how, yes, multiple relationships that you have are not as highly functional as they should be. And your tefillah is not so gorgivaldic. 
and your learning isn't so wow, 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 and your perspective and understanding of Imuna isn't so solid and ongoing, and, 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 and. So let's just, for once, take some time to look inwards and not try to solve and not try to whitewash, just experience how it feels to be completely broken. That's what we are. We are broken. We are broken. We're broken. Name me one person. No. Name me one family that doesn't have someone on some kind of psychiatric medication. One. Just one. Well, isn't it? kind of telling of some kind of rupture in our emotional health that, that's a in the words of a doctor when trying to find out about a particular individual and they say and the person was taking medication he says but you have to understand that there's a rule with no exception that there's in every family there's someone on medication and that anti-anxiety and anti-depression pills are the most prescribed drugs in the west So, okay, so we are fractured, fragmented, broken individuals. That's okay. It's okay when we actually are open open to admit that. Because that means now we've touched reality. Now we've, ironically, that's how we connect ourselves. But we try to look at ourselves and say, yeah, I'm okay. I'm kind of doing well. And we kind of try to hype ourselves up into this, 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 this false sense of, yeah, but you know what? Like, Ki'ili, what it does, it, what does it do? That kind of, that, like, the, the desperate, desperate scaffolding of my own internal world, lest I actually look inside and see the scaffolding collapse and thinking I'll collapse itself. Now you have to realize that when you have the courage to look inside and examine your own internal fragmentation, there is actually healing. As Rabbi Sosalanta says, there's nothing as whole as a broken heart. And when he said broken heart, he didn't mean a person that's just ended a loving relationship. A broken heart, in the way that Chazal speak about it, is when you don't know what's going on in your life because everything's messed up. And there's nothing more complete than that because then you've touched who you really are and then you're connected. And therefore, that relationship to myself is a healthy one because it's connective. And this kind of, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay because if I'm, if I'm actually going to look inside myself and see all this muck and see all this dirt and see all this grime, I'm going to be able to handle it. I'm fine, I'm fine. Boom, blast to the smile. <laughs> Here we go. Everything's good. I'm happy. Give me another smoke of weed. Oh. Why the smoke of weed? Why do you need it? Why do you need it? Oh, I just needed to go to sleep at night. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I don't smoke a lot, says student. Well, how much do you smoke? Well, just every night before I go to sleep. <laughs> I'm saying, just like, kind of like, what are you doing? You're trying to ease the pain. Because you have to run away from it. Because it's too painful. But it's an illusion. Because when you go into it with faith, you realize it's okay. And you can cry, and you can cry your eyes out, and those tears are the balm which will heal our broken hearts. It's okay. Because underneath 
all that brokenness, do you know what there is? And this is so fundamental. Underneath all the brokenness, there lies a perfect, pure self. Inviolable, incorruptible, eternal. And once you recognize that, you lose the fear to penetrate yourself and your deepest, darkest, bruisest fears. Because that's not who you are. That's just the stuff from the outside. In the inside, I proclaim every morning, Elokai, I have a holy part inside of myself, a pure part inside of myself that can never be touched. And for me to get there, I have to navigate through the walls that block that, those walls of worry and fear and anxiety and depression and all the other stuff. But even when I begin the journey, I started off recognizing that the compass and leader of that voyage inside is energized by my internal deep understanding that I'm fundamentally fantastic. But that fundamental fantasticism, new word, is covered over by all these things and therefore we have to go inside them very relaxedly and just visit them and see, hey man, what's going on over here? And the reason why we fear so deeply to penetrate ourselves and we need to constantly occupy ourselves with those self-scaffolding techniques is because we don't have enough of a connection relationship to Anushama. And therefore, ironically, the path towards healing is reconnection. And the way to rebuild the base of Mekdash, internal and external, is to recognize that Amidst the tragedy, there's always hope. Because that's all just on the outside. But in the inside, the Bore Olam is present in every single thought and breath that we take. And behind it all, he's beautifully engineering the ultimate reconnection to spiritual bliss. And this is all just a process. And that's perhaps why Rabbi Akiva, Gemara in the end of Marcus, tells this beautiful story. Gemara in the Marcus tells a story about Ukfar Hoya Rabban Gamliel great sage the Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah these were the Gedoyla Olam Amuda Olam pillars Rebbe Yeshua the Rebbe Akiva Rabban Gamliel Lazar ben Azariah Rebbe Yeshua the Rebbe Akiva these four sages were walking Halchim Bederich they were walking along the way Veshamu Kol Hamoyne Sharemi Mi Plata Barochik Mev Israel or Tilus. And they heard the sound of the Roman masses, even though it was 120 mil, which is 240 kilometers away. There was such a rowdy uproar. And they all began to cry. Rabbi Akiva was a cheik, and Rabbi Akiva began to laugh. Amuloi, we play matam sachek. They said, Rabbi Kiva, why are you laughing? Amalehem, vatem, we play atem boichim. Why are you crying? Amuloi, they replied to him, Halolu kushim shemishtachvim natsavim. These people that bowed down 
to idols. Meaning they're so disconnected from the notion of a unified energy in the creation and that they utilize the world only to serve their own needs, creating an absolute barrier between them and the realization of a spiritual truth. And they are sitting there, Yoshim Betach, in security and flowering, prosperous. Vehashkait and serenity. Vaanu and we, in comparison, base Hadoim Raglaim, the footstool of the Boya Olam, as it were. Elokenu, Soruf, is burnt. Baish, with fire. Vloinifke, and we shouldn't cry. That's why I'm laughing. That's why I'm happy. If the people who are disconnected from the Boya Olam, from Hashem, are experiencing such prosperity and bounty, for those that are connected, surely their experience of life will be a thousand times greater. You call that prosperity? <laughs> Those are for the people who are disconnected. The connected ones, unimaginable, what they'll be able to experience in their connection and prosperity. Another time, the same group of four sages, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Kiva, were walking up to Yerushalayim. They got to Mount Scopus. Coral Big Dam. They tore their clothing. And that's correct. This is like, we, we're standing in that place. That they, they stood and trod, almost. They, now, Allah is that when you see the site of the base, you, you tear. And that's why even today, when you go to visit the coastal, you tear Kriya. Kivan Jegu Laharabais, they got to the point where the Temple Mount was. But Ushu'al. There's a fox, leaving the site of the Holy of Holies. You can imagine that desecration and the pain. They began to cry. Grown men crying. They seem to be crying a lot. They weren't scared to cry. Grown men aren't scared to cry. Boys want to be cowboys. Grown men want to cry. For a kiva, he started to laugh. He saw this seemingly horrendous thing. He started to laugh. Why are you laughing? Why are you crying? You must place it. It was so sanct, such sanctity that even a person who wasn't the Korean girl would be able to he would be able to live if he was exposed to that level of kedusha. And now there are foxes running around, and now there are foxes. And we won't cry. That's what I'm laughing. It says in the Pasuk Nishaya, and I'll bring faithful witnesses. I'll bring Uriah Koev and Zechariah ben Yevarachayu. Yevarachayahu. What's the connection between these two personalities that he's bringing as witnesses in his prophecy? 
Uriah B'mikdash Rishon. Uriah was in the first base of Mikdash. Zechariah B'mikdash Shein was in the second base of Mikdash. Why is he putting them together? The reason why he's doing so is Rebbe Giva. The Pasuk hinges the prophecy of Zechariah on the prophecy of Uriah. In regard to Uriah, it says, Uksev, Lachem Biglalchem Tzioin Sadeh Techoresh. Because of you, Tzioin, as a field will be plowed, like we saw in the Rambam. That was a prophecy of Uriah. But we bring Zechariah as well to Tesla. What does Zechariah say? The time will come when old people, old men and old women will sit in the streets of Jerusalem. This pasuk is written in the old city just outside the Zalum and Cheda. And it's beautiful because you can sit on one of the benches there and watch the children playing in the playground as the old people walk by in the streets of Jerusalem. Until, I, until the prophecy of Uriah had not been kept to be the temple being laid to waste. I thought maybe Zechariah's prophecy would not be kept. Now that I see that Uriah's prophecy has been kept, I can be sure that Zechariah's prophecy will come true. And to this, they say to Rebbe Akiva, Akiva, Nechamtanu, Akiva, Nechamtanu, Akiva, you have come with us. Now you can imagine when Akiva, Rebbe Akiva said that 2,000 years ago. And then they went into the darkest exile. And they went through the pogroms and the Chalmaniki uprisings and the expulsion from Spain. And people would learn this Gemara and say, Really? Really? until barely less than a hundred years ago when all of a sudden the people start to return to Jerusalem and inhabit the streets and now the elderly and the young play in the streets of Jerusalem so it hasn't finished yet we're still on the way there there's still a lot more that needs to be fixed up but how can we not be absolutely filled with deep hope and conviction that everything's okay. And because everything's okay, I can look at the broken side of the world. If everything would be fundamentally destroyed, I would never be able to go into the dark places inside myself because I wouldn't be able to come out. But now I know, just like in the world, there's this, underneath it all, there's only light and hope. Also inside of me, underneath it all, there's only light, hope, beauty, pristine, incredible being. That is what we connect into in the three weeks.